To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep, no more. And by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. Boom! It's Shakespeare! Act 3, scene 1! Yes! You guys know this soliloquy. This is Hamlet's famous soliloquy, where he's contemplating life or death. A seemingly binary choice. Yeah, the first line, to be or not to be, that is the question. Two options. That's it. But in true Hamlet fashion... Oh my gosh, this guy, this angsty guy. He starts fleshing it out and he starts to realize, oh my gosh, there's so much more to it than that. We are Red Weather Christians. I'm Jen. I'm Steve. We're here working through what drives, motivates, and inspires us to act. Whether it's a career, a religion, a family, or thinking in black and white, does it even make us happy? So, Hamlet, even he, when it's life or death, when we even think about something, you're alive or you're dead, that's two options. It's just not that simple. Because what is living in that case? Right, and that's why he's having so much trouble with this. That's why he even starts the soliloquy, because he is contemplating not living. Living to him means he's going to have to do some things that he doesn't want to do. Avenge his father's death. He doesn't want to do it. And yet, the dying part is still this relative unknown. Total gray area. And then he's like, well, if I commit suicide and, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean I go directly to hell? What dreams may come? Yada, yada. There's a lot going on here. So when I teach AP statistics, it always comes up uh, when we start talking about binomial probability distribution. As one does. Right. Everybody does this. You can fit any anything into an either or. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't even need to be 50-50. It's not like a coin flip. Truth be told, I had a student once who thought basically everything was 50-50. It either happens or it doesn't. That binomial idea, that binary situation. But in statistics, we just consider the probability that something is a success. And then everything that's not that is considered failure. Essentially, failure is predicated on being not successful. That's a lot. That's a lot to think about because I feel like if I don't achieve my goal, I've failed, but I've achieved something in that process. And we've talked about that with progress in a previous episode, this season. Right. Success and failure both come with a lot of variables, nuances. Success is not necessarily one thing. I think back to when we were talking about the marathon Success for someone might be running it under three hours. Success for somebody else is just completing it and getting across the finish line. So even from person to person, success changes. But within one person, success could be different. 
And so let's just take a moment here, a little thought exercise here. I love it. Jen, go ahead and give me a percent of humanity that you think is good. Oh my gosh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> because you have to define good. Just just give me a number. Oh my gosh. Let's go with a solid 80%. Oh, wow. 80% good. That is, that is very optimistic. That's fantastic. Okay. Hey, so, I'm an Enneagram one. I'm an idealist, right? Oh my gosh. I cannot believe you invoked the Enneagram here. <laughs> this is a sacred space here. I know that it gets you. Oh. If it's 80% good, then the only other option other than good is not good, theoretically. But what we've defined in our human lives is if it's not good, it must be evil. That means 20% of the population is inherently evil. Okay. Is there any middle ground, Jen? Apparently not. Good or evil, that's it. To be good or to be evil, that is the question. But here's the rub. Ah, yes. <laughs> we can be programmed to act or think like robots, but what separates us is our ability to act or think outside of the program. We are not just the ones and zeros that Neo sees in the Matrix. Right. We're not a part of a binary program of ones and zeros. We are complex human beings. We can pick a myriad of numbers between one and zero. Ah, the beauty of life. But the question that we have and why we decided to do this episode is it seems like there are a lot of people out there who want life to be binary. We want to have that binary thinking. We think it's going to make life easier. But of course, it's going to make us robotic. So let's just think about some choices or options that we get in life that go down this route, good or bad. Right or wrong. Yes or no. Black or white. Gay or straight. Christian or non-Christian. Boy or girl. For most of those, you can imagine, especially say black or white, oh, there are a bunch of gray areas and the whole spectrum of colors, it varies this way and that way. And there's some unseen colors too, like infrared and ultraviolet that we can experience. So there's got to be something other than just black or white. That's easy enough. Yeah, I think when we're talking about colors, it's easy, like you said, to say, oh, there's a spectrum. But then when it comes to other things, we want there to be no spectrum. We want there to be no spectrum for boy-girl. We want there to be no spectrum for Christian, non-Christian. It's just to be or not to be. That's it. No question. <laughs> no question. Exactly. Let's not think about this. Let's not have a soliloquy. Maybe it's time to have a soliloquy, people, and maybe that's what this episode is. And I mean, just think about any sort of frustration you might have had in your life when you're filling out a survey, a questionnaire, something with inadequate options. You want something other than yes or no? Sorry, you don't get that. We, as humans, want something other than binary options. And yet, we want to be binary in so many elements of our life. So we're going to hash this out. Sure. And we're going to start with, are we Christians? That's just me and Jen here. Yes. <laughs> you might be a Christian. I don't know. Listen, I feel like I am too Christian for my non-Christian friends and not Christian enough for my Christian friends. And it's this weird gray area. And yet we would still classify ourselves as Christians. We believe in the basic tenets of the Christian faith. But I have an interesting thing. We have a friend, atheist friend, who I think he is pretty sure we're not Christians. 
I mean, he always jokes. He's like, oh, you guys aren't Christians. Uh." We're not real Christians. But I think the reason for that is that he doesn't ever think of himself being friends with a Christian. So because he's friends with us, we must not be Christians. Maybe he's being a little too binary in his thinking, Steve. (laughs) But that's just what we're talking about, right? Whereas some of our Christian friends who no longer think we're Christians because of this podcast. Whoopsie. (laughs) Like we're not Christian enough. Not Christian enough. We're just not Christian for some of them, but yeah. And what does that even mean? We talked about being good enough. I don't even know if we've satisfied that. Yikes. But continuing on with the Christian element here, I think it's really interesting. I read a book called Inspired by Rachel Held Evans. I've mentioned it before, but she talks about how different people approach the Bible in different ways. Christian people tend to tend to approach the Bible looking for answers, and a little bit more of the black and white kind of approach. Jewish readers, um, I'll just read you what she wrote. Jewish readers make a point of highlighting the Bible's contradictions to spark discussion and debate. So it's not about there being an answer or a not answer for them. It's about maybe let's discuss this, let's debate this. And that, again, is one of the big reasons why we started this podcast is to have these conversations. Let me read you another paragraph from her book. When God gave us the Bible, God did not give us an internally consistent book of answers. God gave us an inspired library of diverse writings rooted in a variety of contexts that have stood the test of time precisely because, together, they avoid simplistic solutions to complex problems. It's almost as though God trusts us to approach them with wisdom, to use discernment as we read and interpret, and to remain open to other points of view. That does not sound like binary thinking to me, where it's, there's an answer here or there's not an answer here. Yeah, but I just think she's wrong. (laughs) Well, there you go. Answer. (laughs) I found it in the Bible. Uh, Anyway. She, She has this great quote from this guy, Timothy Beale, and it says, the iconic idea of the Bible as a book of black and white answers encourages us to remain in a state of spiritual immaturity. Yep. Ooh, call out. I love it. The quote goes on to say that in turning readers away from the struggle, from wrestling with the rich complexity of biblical literature and its history in which there are no easy answers, it perpetuates an adolescent faith. Ooh, we got spiritual immaturity. We got an adolescent faith. I mean, do people want those? I think they would say no, but I think at the same time, They're the ones who are perpetuating this in themselves. But Jen, if I have faith like a child, I can move mountains. So I might as well just keep my adolescent faith. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not to put someone down who does have that kind of faith. It's to hopefully open up conversations with them so they don't get stuck in that kind of faith. Yeah, you have to start somewhere and you start in a simple faith where it is more black and white. Think of maybe in Sunday school, you weren't having rich discussions and you weren't voicing your doubts and asking deep philosophical questions about the story that you were watching being laid out for you on the flannel board. Yeah, at some point, even when we're learning 
non-religious things. We are told these things are good or bad in a binary way that makes sense to children. If I tell my kids it's a good thing to clean up, that's good, but is it really good in the grand scheme of good and evil? Is it evil that they're not cleaning up their rooms? I would answer that with a, a no. It's not evil. It's just disobedience, which some qualify as a terrible evil. I don't. <laughs> anyway, we do have our kids clean up. <laughs> but And they, they understand it as a good or bad thing right now. Right now, yes. Yeah, you're right. And I think that's kind of how we start with the Bible. Speaking of which, I recently watched a session from the Evolving Faith Conference from Reverend Brian D. McLaren, and he talked a lot about repentance, but one thing that really stood out to me was he had these stages of Christian faith, or just faith, and the first stage was simplicity. Your faith starts out in the simplicity stage, where, yes, it's binaries, the next stage is complexity, where there starts to be nuance and shades of gray. Stage three is perplexity. This is where you're starting to scrutinize and challenge. And then stage four is called harmony slash solidarity. And that's the stage where we are exploring what, what is the best we can do, which seems kind of vague, but that's stage four. And what started us out on this podcast was our frustration with so many people being stuck in stage one. Or even two. True. Where it's like, oh yeah, there are things I don't understand, but I don't really talk about them. And let me be clear. I don't even know where I land on this list on all the topics. I'd love to think that I'm some solid fourth level religious faith something or other, but there are things that I don't want to think about yet, or I haven't had to confront in my own life. I hope I'm open to those conversations. Exactly. This reverend also talks about how the universe is on a trajectory. We can see that just biologically speaking from our history, science, but his idea is that every generation is to rethink what it inherited. And that's how we honor the efforts of our ancestors. We take what they have built and we build upon that. We use our creativity in our context and in our culture and we move beyond them. Imagine how is it honoring our ancestors to simply take what they've built and just stay right there and not make anything better, not think any differently, and just remain stagnant? That is dishonoring our ancestors. And I really liked that. I thought that, ooh, that hit me hard. And then another thing that hit me very hard was he said that it is a moral obligation to adapt and expand theology. Now, there might be people listening right now who maybe you got goosebumps or maybe you just got angry <laughs> hearing that, but it is a moral obligation to adapt and expand theology. I do think that there are some people who are stuck thinking that we have to keep it exactly the same. And that's hard to do with a book that was written in a culture that was so incredibly different than ours. It's difficult to do when the Bible has had many, many handlers. And speaking of this, this is another session that I listened to from Barbara Brown Taylor. 
She talks about all the people who have handled the Bible before it has even gotten to us. So first, mostly men. Second, early authorities who decided what should go into the Bible and what shouldn't. And then in what order? And then scholars who chose which were the oldest and most trustworthy manuscripts. And then linguists to translate. And keep in mind, there was there was no word spacing. There were no paragraph breaks. There was no punctuation. There were no upper and lowercase letters. So think about a sentence like, I am now here. And how that could be interpreted as, I am nowhere. And then editors to divide the Bible into books and chapters. And then editors of English translated Bibles. And finally, the preachers, the bloggers, the YouTubers, the influencers who convey the information to us. So just remember that when you're looking at the Bible and thinking, well, here's the answer book. I just need to turn to page 1,852. But there are some answers in the Bible, Jen. Uh, I can look up some answers about should you make an oath? Should you, you know, swear to do something? Jesus says no, by the way. Don't do that. Uh, he says, this is in Matthew 5, 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Yikes for all the mortgage papers we've signed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, the idea is it's yes or no. That's a binary option. What if there's a maybe, like a solid maybe? I don't want to say no. I don't know if it's not going to happen or I'm not going to do that, but I also don't want to commit to it. Like there's a... Solid maybe there. So we come back to these questions in our lives. Why do we like binary thinking so much? Why do we cling to it in so many areas of our life? What makes us so upset that someone could be not a boy and not a girl? I think it, it when you start taking some of these things, when you're in that simplistic faith, perhaps, and you say, this is not binary because people have grown up thinking that it is and that the whole Bible is like that, it dismantles their entire faith. So I think that's scary for people. Right. So when I encounter this question more personally about literally intersex people, people who are neither a boy nor a girl, they don't fit the binary codes, and yet we force them into one of those two options. And keep in mind, if you are a Bible-believing, God-fearing person, God made them that way. Right, we're talking about, we're really taking it on a simplistic level here, and we're talking about the people who are born this way. They are not getting changes done to their bodies. They are born with maybe not a complete set of parts for either gender. It is literally not binary. And it is literally, if you believe this, what God created. That makes me think, again, maybe this is too Christian, but that just makes me confirm that God didn't create a binary world. We need to get away from it. I mean, I just go back to like looking at this from a simple layman's perspective here. If the world is binary, it limits us in so many ways. It's telling us you are not a complex human. Sorry. So let's rethink this. Go back and figure out an alternative to binary. I'm not trying to get a binary opposite. So, 
So please don't don't binary or not binary. Not binary. <laughs> no, no, that's not what it is. But rather think of that, go back to that spectrum of colors. Forget the colors. Just think about the spectrum of light during a day. We have in our languages, not just English, not just Spanish, the two that I know. I'm guessing the others as well. Early morning, that's sunrise or dawn. Late evening, you've got dusk or twilight or sunset. You've got high noon, varying amounts of light every single day. And we're totally fine with it. It's not day or night. Like right now, it's technically still day, I guess, but it's dark out. Because it's day because I haven't gone to sleep? What? So let's imagine most of these answers that we have on a sliding scale. Some of you could already be thinking, look, there's a basketball game. You either win or you lose. You can't tie. Okay, okay. But we have artificially created that binary situation. We're trying to get the more complex things in life and talk about those and open them up to discussion. I think it is fun and entertaining to have some binary things going on in your life. Like, did you do this or did you not do this? Did you complete this task or not? Did you win or did you lose? And I think it's it's fun and it makes our life maybe a little easier, maybe a little bit more entertaining, and that's great. But when we're talking about philosophy or theology or how to live the best life, we've got to bring the, the complex into the discussion. Recently, I was reading an email from The Marginalian, formerly known as Brain Pickings, and she was writing about this book that John Steinbeck wrote that didn't get a lot of press. It's a nonfiction book called The Log from the Sea of Cortez. And there was a quote in here that was just too good not to share. So here we go. People get to believing and even to professing the apparent answers thus arrived at, suffering mental constrictions by emotionally closing their minds to any of the further and possibly opposite answers which might otherwise be unearthed by honest effort. Answers which, if faced realistically, would give rise to a struggle and to a possible rebirth which might place the whole problem in a new and more significant light. Wow. Uh, obviously, that that is coming from Steinbeck, who could write and speak probably better than we can. Yeah, that is why sometimes you just got to go for the direct quote. Let's not paraphrase that. Yeah, and all of that still leads you to opening that conversation to even encounter some other answer. Yeah, to unearth it, like Steinbeck says. I like the the word there, unearth, because it's like you're really digging and you're getting your hands dirty and maybe, you know, you're you're finding some other stuff that you don't want, but you got to work for it. I love that. And yet, if you think about digging for things in the earth, not only do you find things you don't want, you might not even find what you're looking for. Right. And the idea of embracing that process of getting dirty and maybe not even getting what you want. And going back to Hamlet here, remember he starts with that binary question to be or not to be, but then he struggles with this binary option of if I kill myself, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? Which makes me remember uh, a book I read by Rob Bell called Love Wins. And he has an interesting quote here. He says, 
Of all the billions of people who have ever lived, will only a select number make it to another place and every single other person suffer in torment and punishment forever? Is this acceptable to God? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? Just some questions for you guys to mull over. But I think they're good questions, and I I know that when I grew up in the Christian faith, it was kind of like, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you go to hell. That's it. Two options. And it sure makes the one option seem obvious. I know, right? Do you want heaven or hell? I don't know. I struggle with this as a parent, too, and we might have mentioned this in our episode from season one. It was episode five, Want to Make the World Better, Doubt Heaven, but when— you are a parent and you are raising your kids in the Christian faith and they start saying things like, well, if I just die right now, I can just go to heaven. That makes you kind of take a step back and ask yourself, what am I teaching my kids? Like, I don't want them to think that way. Like, oh, well, if I just die, I can just go to heaven. And everyone's telling me how great heaven is. And everyone's telling me how it's the best ever. And it's way better than this life. Like, why don't I just go there now? I don't like that. I don't want that either for them. Yeah. The heaven maybe, but not the dead right now. So what what we're trying to do as parents is teach them that heaven is here, it is now, it is on earth, it is what you make of your complex life. And it may also be something when you die. But let's focus on the heaven here, what we do know. Yes. This is and we were just having this conversation with the kids the other day. We were telling them like We don't know 100% what's going to happen to us after we die, but we do know what's happening right now. Non-Christian alert. (laughs) The the alarms just went off. Oh, shoot. (laughs) We're caught. Um, We do know what's going on in our life right now, and we can do things in our life right now to make it better. And when Jen says we do know, we're not going to try to unpack that philosophically or epistemologically. We're just going to go ahead and accept that. We're just going to accept that we are living our life right now, and it is what we are aware of and what we feel like we have control over. Again, not going to unpack that any further. I can choose to go run a 15K or not. I choose that, and I choose to do that because I feel like it is making my life better, and I am becoming a stronger person, and I have control over that. And we are going to ignore any of the philosophical concepts of determinism that might persist just so Jen can have her choice of running or not running. Boom. Binary. (laughs) (laughs) So who would fartles bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? Thus, conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. And so, with our last little bit of literary analysis, we look at what he actually decides to do. What does Hamlet decide to do? Nothing. <laughs> Inaction. He he's having this whole soliloquy of thoughts. He's like, should I do this? What about that? Blah, 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 blah. 
And he realizes, oh man, in thinking about all of this, it has taken away any motivation I have to get things done. And thus he doesn't really choose living and he doesn't really choose dying. So interesting because he starts with that binary question, but then he ends it with somewhere in the middle. Because when Steve says he chooses not living, what he means is he chooses inaction, which we would say isn't really living. You're not choosing to do something with your life. Avenge your father's death, Hamlet. You have one job. And you can do that and kill yourself at the same time. Woohoo! <laughs> Spoiler alert. Oh, gosh. So what we hope you hear from this is that there is a binary choice that you are probably making with someone that you know and love, and that is not having a conversation. Because having a conversation might unearth something. You might get your hands dirty. It might have some quality of rebirth of ideas, something new, something different. And new and different is scary sometimes. We are... Red Weather Christians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jen. We hope you'll feel empowered to question the rules you follow. Fear mediocrity. And keep the conversation going.